turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Coming up, I'll argue that Mitch McConnell's departure signals the end of the era of the peacetime generals, and I'll lay out what to expect once McConnell leaves. Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey joins me. We're going to talk about his lawsuit against Planned Parenthood. Hey, if you're watching on Rumble or listening on Apple, Google, or Spotify, please subscribe to my channel. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Show. this voice. The times are crazy and a time of confusion, division, and lies. We need a brave voice of reason, understanding, and truth. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Podcast. Mitch McConnell, the um, minority leader in the Senate, and in fact, a longtime Republican leader of the Senate, is getting out. And he's not leaving now. He's leaving uh, in November um, after the after the election. But nevertheless, his announcement that he's quitting is is big. It signals, I think, not only uh, an end for McConnell, but as I'm going to go on to argue, a real new uh, beginning for the Republican Party. Now, now, why do I say that? I say that because. Um, the Republican Party had been dominated by a certain type of person in a leadership role. And I'm going to mention three people in the House, Kevin McCarthy, in at the RNC, Rona McDaniel, and in the Senate, Mitch McConnell. Now, these three aren't exactly the same. In personality, they're quite different. Uh, Mitch is kind of a grumpy guy. Uh, a, uh, in a sense, you could call him Senator No. He's an odd person to be in a leadership position. He's a very good strategist. He's a good vote counter. I'm going to give him credit for good things that he has done. But nevertheless, um, he doesn't have that kind of charisma, that gregariousness you expect in a leader. Now, interestingly, Kevin McCarthy does. Kevin McCarthy is a very gregarious guy. He is somebody who remembers your name. He's somebody who will call you back. He's somebody who is who built a powerful donor network. He's somebody who... Um, so in personality, I, I would not say that those two are the same. And then, of course, you have inert... Uh, you know, useless Rona McDaniel, who I think of as as essentially a large individual sitting Buddha-like on a statue, uh, motionless, uh, while uh, Republican fortunes go down the tubes. So uh, an inert individual, uh, a do-nothing. Uh, and that's not that would not be true of either Kevin McCarthy or Mitch McConnell. You may not like what Mitch McConnell's doing, but he's up to something. He's up to he might be doing bad stuff like, OK, I'm going to I'm going to make sure this Ukraine aid bill passes no matter what. And then McConnell is indefatigable indefatigable in making sure that happens. Or I'm determined, and this is on a more positive note, to block uh, Obama's appointment of Merrick Garland 
I mean, let's pause for a moment here and think about how great that is, because this is, to me, Mitch McConnell's finest moment. It's when he essentially held on in the teeth. He was being attacked from all quarters and um, and the media was after him. But no, like a like a sort of a dog with a bone. He would not give in. Uh, He kept that seat open. Uh, and Trump was able to appoint. Trump won the 2016 election. I mean, think about Merrick Garland, this absolute monster, this uh, this nasty individual who has been destroying people's lives. Now, I mean, I suppose one could say, hey, listen, if Merrick Garland was on the court, he couldn't be doing the bad stuff he's doing at DOJ. But the bad stuff he's doing at DOJ is a, a, a confirmation of how horrific it would be to have this guy on the court. So I think I think McConnell deserves a lot of credit. For having done that. And over the years, McConnell has done good stuff. He has gotten some conservative priorities through. He has passed even legislation that was supported by Trump, uh, the Trump tax bill, for example. So one can't look back over Mitch McConnell's record and just say it's a record of failure. No, it actually isn't. But it was failure at the end. Uh, Mitch really was out of it. Mitch himself kind of knows he was out of it. I'm quoting him now. Believe me, I know the politics within my party at this particular time. I have many faults. Misunderstanding politics is not one of them. Now, according to the New York Times article, McConnell to step down as leader at the end of the year, they say that Mitch, quote, acknowledged that his views on national security had put him out of step with his party. So the implication here is that Mitch McConnell was out of sync, was out of step on one issue, which is foreign policy, uh, specifically Ukraine. But I want to argue that this is not, in fact, true. Mitch McConnell is totally out of step of the mood of the party as a whole. What is that mood of the party? The mood of the party basically is that we are no longer in a peacetime environment, politically speaking. Um, we don't need peacetime generals anymore because the country is in a very dire situation. And so we need combat-ready generals. And again, by combat, I mean political combat. We need people who are willing to fight. And now in this environment, Rona McDaniel, well, Rona McDaniel doesn't cut it in any environment. But nevertheless, uh, perhaps there is an environment in which Kevin McCarthy is okay. And perhaps there is an environment in which Mitch McConnell's okay. And I've been in the past okay with Mc- uh, Mitch McConnell and I've even praised him. But that is not the America that we, that we live in, uh, today. And, um, um, and, uh, we are looking for, fighters. Now, this could be, this is made very clear by the kind of praise that is coming uh, for Mitch McConnell from people like uh, Romney, from people like um, Lisa Murkowski. And what's interesting is they are saying the same thing. So here is, here's Romney. Um, No senator in memory has demonstrated more respect for the institution of the Senate than leader Mitch McConnell. Okay. Pretty much the same thing from Lisa Murkowski. Uh, she says, throughout his tenure as leader, his focus was always on preserving the institution of the Senate. And I say, would anyone ever say this about, say, Chuck Schumer? Quote, his focus was on preserving the institution of the Senate. No. Chuck Schumer doesn't care about the institution of the Senate. Schumer does his best to deliver for the Democrats. That's how he understands his mission. So this right here is why Republicans lose, because they have institution men instead of fighters. 
Um, Mitch McConnell protected the institution of the Senate. Um, I think the Republican base is looking for leaders that will fight for them. And this is really what uh, a functional and a healthy party does. And, and in this sense, the Democratic Party is more functional, more healthy than the Republican Party. Why? Look at Democratic leaders. Look at, for example, Pelosi's long tenure uh, in the House. What did she do? She fought for the priorities of her base. She fought for the ide- for the ideological priorities of the left. Schumer is exactly the same. So we need leaders on our side who are like that. Um, and instead, what we have are these kind of institution men who actually pride themselves on standing on principle and going against the wishes of their own base. Enough of that. So I'm actually glad that Mitch has come to the end of the road. And I think the good news is that Mitch's departure, again, I give him, you know, an ambiguous uh, legacy. I think as we look back on Mitch McConnell, we're not going to see this guy as a complete failure, but we're see we're going to see this guy as someone who did some important things along the way, who really failed in the end. And um, but there's an opportunity here because with with Rona McDaniel out, with um, McCarthy out, and now with Mitch McConnell out. We can look forward to getting a new Republican Party that is a, that is more in ideological sync, in uh, moral sync, uh, and also in cultural sync that speaks in a way the tone and the values of the base. And in this way, uh, you have leaders that you are happy to fight for, happy to work for, happy to elect because you know when they get in there, they're not they're not going to take pride in stabbing you in the back. How do you feel these days? I feel great. And one of the reasons I believe I feel so good is because I take this. It's balance of nature. It's fruits and veggies in a capsule so easy to take. They have an amazing story of how this product was developed by Dr. Douglas Howard. It's right there on their website, balanceofnature.com. Now, Balance of Nature receives over a thousand success stories every single month. They have hundreds of thousands of customers who have purchased billions of capsules of their fruits and veggies over the past 20 years. Their products are gluten-free, they're non-GMO, they contain no added sugars or synthetics. So I think if you're looking for something to make you feel better naturally, you should definitely give Balance of Nature a try. In fact, order today. Whether you order online or call them direct, you've got to use promo code AMERICA to get the special offer. 35% off plus $10 off any additional sets plus free shipping and the money-back guarantee. So here's the number to call, 800-246-8751. The number again, 800-246-8751. Or you can go to balanceofnature.com. When you use discount code AMERICA, you'll get the special offer, 35% off, $10 off any additional sets, plus free shipping and the money-back guarantee. Are you ready to lose weight but just not sure where to start? So much of the solution comes with just getting started. And I understand, Debbie and I were right where you are a year ago. Let me tell you why we chose PhD Weight Loss and Nutrition and why I so highly recommend their program. First, Dr. Ashley Lucas. She has her PhD in chronic disease and sports nutrition. Her program is based on years of research. It's science-based. It works. Second, the PhD program starts with nutrition, but it's so much more. They know that 90 
90% of permanent change comes from the mind, and they work on eliminating the reason you gained this weight in the first place. There are no shortcuts, no pills, no injections, just solid science-based nutrition and behavior change. And finally, and probably most important, I lost 27 pounds, Debbie lost 24, we haven't gained the weight back. Why? That's because PhD Weight Loss and Nutrition has a lifelong maintenance program. So if you're ready to lose weight and keep it off, call 864-644-1900 to get started. Or you can go online at myphdweightloss.com. Do what I did, do what hundreds of my listeners have done. Call today, 864-644-1900. Trump has been getting some um, bad news lately. And so it is very good that he is also getting some good news. Um, And as I'm going to go on to argue on the balance for a guy who is facing a blizzard of legal attacks, I mean, two separate cases in New York, Judge Engeron's case, uh, and then you have the Alvin Bragg case, which will be starting up soon. You got the case in D.C. January 6th before a very hostile judge, Tanya Chutkin. You've got the um, the case in Florida over the classified documents. You've got the Georgia case. But I'm going to argue that uh, Trump is actually doing extremely well, and he might ultimately beat every single one of these raps. That is actually not out of the question. And this goes against my my original instinct when I saw these cases was, look, the left is making sure that they get at least one, maybe more convictions. That's the point of 91 charges. How do you get out from 91 charges? How do you avoid that big guilty verdict splashed right across the full front page of the New York Times? Uh, and my thought was, there's no way. Uh, they're filing in hospitable jurisdictions. Now, not always. They don't have a hospitable jurisdiction in Florida. They've got a Trump judge just causing Jack Smith a lot of problems. But they're going to have hospitable jurisdictions most of the place. But uh, as you'll see in a moment, uh, the sky is brightening uh, for Trump in important ways. Now, he does have to come up with $500 million, a, a giant sum of money, uh, and he's going to have to put up something to take a loan uh, in order to do that. Now, my guess, quite honestly, is that he could he probably could get a loan against Mar-a-Lago, which uh, even though the judge says is worth $17 million, laughable uh, number, is probably worth closer to uh, a quarter of a billion dollars, $250 million. So there's half of what Trump needs right there. Trump has the assets. He's going to be able to do it. But it's a major nuisance. Imagine forcing somebody to produce a bond for half a billion dollars. Even when someone's a billionaire, typically your assets aren't liquid. They're tied up. They're in complex relationships relationships to partnerships and so on. You're building hotels together with some other guys and so on. So this is a, a real injustice. And and it's an injustice where even if the case is overthrown, it's it's um, the appellate court throws it out, that could take two years uh, for it to even get to the appellate court. So they're trying to immobilize, to disable Trump in the meantime. However, on a brighter note, the Supreme Court is taking the Trump immunity challenge. 
Now, ironically, it was Jack Smith who went to the Supreme Court and said, please take the immunity issue, please settle it so that this case can move quickly on. But interestingly, um, Trump, who lost at the appellate court level, the appellate court basically said, no, you don't have absolute immunity. The Supreme Court is saying, we're going to take a look at it. We've granted cert, which means that in April, there will be arguments back and forth, which means that the court will then make a decision. Uh, and uh, the decision will come uh, probably, uh, I'm guessing, in May. Uh, and that, uh, if the Supreme Court says, no, Trump doesn't have complete immunity, the case will then get jump-started again. But that doesn't mean it goes to trial in May, because there's a lot to be done. There's a lot of information that has to go back and forth, uh, depositions, cases. Uh, so even if Jack Smith speeds it up, and, and in order to speed it up, by the way, he might have to pare down the case. He may have to simplify it, cut it back, try to prove a narrower point. But even then, it's not even clear that this case will go to trial before the election. It's very obvious that Jack Smith is a highly political prosecutor. He is going for that guilty verdict before the election. He realizes that people will lose interest after the election. And so this is a politically motivated prosecution. That, Even though Jack Smith won't admit it, everybody knows that that is the case. So, um, interestingly, there are now going to be three Trump-related cases before SCOTUS. One they've already heard, the Colorado case about throwing Trump off the ballot. We're waiting for a decision in that case. The second is the obstruction of an official proceeding uh, case. That's the case that deals with a lot of January 6th. Uh, protesters, but it also involves Trump because, because for January 6th protesters and for Trump, this is a felony charge. And if it's thrown out, it knocks the wind out of the case because to say things like, you know, the January 6th guy was, was trespassing. He was in an unauthorized area of the Capitol. Those are misdemeanors. But obstructing an official proceeding is a felony. So that's before the court. And now this issue of presidential immunity. So, um, so the, the, the left is screaming about this. They're like, the, why did the Supreme Court take this case? They didn't even have to take the case. They could have just gone with the, they could have left intact the ruling of the appellate court. Now, the appellate court basically said Trump doesn't have absolute immunity. But interestingly, the Supreme Court doesn't have to find that Trump has absolute immunity in order to say that he would have immunity for these actions that are alleged on January 6th. In other words, some of the hypotheticals that were put uh, to the Trump attorneys, oh, you know, if Trump instructs SEAL Team 6 to go assassinate his political rivals, would that constitute, does he have immunity to do that? No, we're not talking about that. Trump didn't do that. That's an interesting sort of uh, discussion for the philosophy seminar. But the court doesn't have to reach that kind of absolute immunity to simply say, look, what are we looking at? We're looking at the actions of a president who on January 6th, in other words, while he is in office, not after, uh, not after the presidency, but during the presidency, the actions of a president to contest the, the result of the election. Is a pre does a president have the absolute right to do that? And regardless of, of how he went about it, he made a phone call over here, he instigated this, he did that. Was he within the conduct of his presidential duties and therefore immune? And the Supreme Court could go, yes. 
Uh, we're not saying that he's immune in theory. We can envision circumstances that would not be immune, but this would be immune. So regardless of what President Trump did or didn't do, uh, even if everything that the prosecution says is true, it would be covered by immunity. And so the bottom line of it, and actually Megyn Kelly sums this up pretty well, she goes, she goes, Trump may well have pulled the inside straight that he needs to beat all these cases. She says, New York is a joke. Georgia is dying slash severely delayed. This is the Fannie Willis business. Florida ain't ap- happening before November. And now, Neither is the January 6th D.C. case. And she says, incredible, which, I mean, again, uh, it seemed very unlikely at one point that Trump could beat all of these raps. But now there is, I wouldn't say the likelihood. At this point, I would simply say the clear and distinct possibility that he will. If aches and pains are your problem, um, Relief Factor is your solution. Debbie and I started taking Relief Factor three years ago. We have noticed a huge difference in our joints. Nothing short of amazing. Aches and pains are totally gone thanks to this 100% drug-free solution called Relief Factor. It's a natural way to fight pain. Relief Factor is a daily supplement. It helps your body fight back against pain. It's 100% drug-free. Relief Factor was developed by doctors searching for a better alternative for pain. Relief Factor uses a unique formula of natural ingredients like turmeric, omega-3s to help reduce or eliminate the everyday aches and pains you're experiencing. So whether it's neck, back, joint, or muscle pain, Relief Factor can help you feel better. Unlike pills that simply mask your pain for a short time, Relief Factor supports your body's natural response to inflammation. So you feel better all day, every day. See how Relief Factor can help you with this. It's a three-week quick start kit. It's only $19.95 and it comes with Relief Factor's feel better or your money back guarantee. So what do you have to lose? Give it a try. Visit relieffactor.com or call 800-4, so the number four, relief. The number again, 800-4-RELIEF or go to relieffactor.com. When you feel the difference, you know it works. Mike Lindell has a passion to help you get the best sleep of your life after he invented the world's best pillow. He created the famous Giza Dream Sheets. Now, these are the softest, crispest, best sheets you will ever sleep on. For a limited time, you get a queen-size set for $59.98, king-size just $69.98, the lowest prices in history. Mike and the MyPillow team, they continue to be canceled and attacked uh, by the media, by the big box stores, so they appreciate all of your great support during these times. They want to thank you by giving you the best specials on all their products. So get the specials. You got to go to MyPillow.com or you can call 800-876-0227. The number again, 800-876-0227. Use promo code Dinesh. You'll get the famous Giza Dream Sheets, queen size $59.98, king size $69.98. By the way, you get a 60% off the original My Slipper. So great deals. Call 800-876-0227 or go to MyPillow.com. Don't forget to use the promo code D-I-N-E-S-H Dinesh. Guys, I'm delighted to welcome um, welcome back to the podcast our friend Andrew Bailey. He is the Attorney General of the State of Missouri. He's a decorated combat veteran, father of four, constitutional conservative. You can follow him on X at AG Andrew Bailey. Um, Andrew, thanks for joining me. Welcome. Uh, you have uh, taken up the legal cudgels against Planned Parenthood in your uh, home state of Missouri. What is Planned Parenthood? doing right now in Missouri? I'm, I'm sure it can't be good, but give us the details. 
Yeah, well, thank you for having me on and discussing this important topic. We are taking on the fight once again against this cult of death. The Planned Parenthood has consistently and repeatedly and willfully refused to comply with state statute. This goes back more than a half a decade. And my predecessors began this operation, and I'm going to finish it to once and for all attempt to drive Planned Parenthood from the state of Missouri for their unlawful behavior, their commitment to uh, unlawful behavior. In 2023, in November, at the end of last year, an investigative journalist with Project Veritas filmed a video at a Planned Parenthood clinic in Kansas City where an agent of Planned Parenthood bragged, bragged to the camera about trafficking minors out of state for abortions, refusing to obtain parental consent, refusing to comply with state statute regarding reporting requirements, and refusing to be a mandatory reporter for a sexual offense against a minor, thereby concealing the sexual exploitation of young girls. This is abhorrent and criminal behavior. We are going to court. We filed a lawsuit today. This needs to be the beginning of the end of this cult of death and its operations in the state of Missouri. Now, I'm assuming that there are laws on the books in Missouri that say that if a minor is going to uh, get an abortion, there needs to be parental consent. Is that the law that Planned Parenthood is violating? That is one of the laws we believe that they're violating. Absolutely. And again, this is uh, based on uh, an investigative video that we've obtained of a clinic in Kansas City where the clinician brags about forging documents, deceiving custodial parents, schools, the court system uh, in order to traffic these young girls out of state for abortion. She brags three times. They do it every day, every day, every day. If that is true and, and bears out, these are serious offenses. Even if proven that they're not reporting or recording proper uh, consent and notifications, that still is a violation of state statute. So this is a consistent pattern of behavior going all the way to tw- back to 2018. My predecessor, Josh Hawley, when he was attorney general, brought suit and uncovered that Planned Parenthood was using a moldy abortion machine on women and refusing to report and record medical complications that they experienced. So that started this process. And then in 2019, 2020, my predecessor, then Attorney General Eric Schmidt, filed suit and got Planned Parenthood officials to admit under oath that physicians were refusing to provide the risk notification to the patients who were undergoing these dangerous procedures and thus failing to comply with state statute. And now we have this conduct occurring in 2024. Again, this is a consistent pattern of behavior where Planned Parenthood puts the destruction, prioritizes the destruction of human life above the health and safety of women. And it can't be allowed to continue. And it seems that from what you're describing, the woman wasn't merely saying that I, a rogue operator at Planned Parenthood, am doing this on my own. She seemed to be saying that this is actually normal practice at the Planned Parenthood clinic. In other words, that this was an, this was part of what Planned Parenthood was organizing. Certainly. If anyone watches that video, that investigative video, you will see that this agent of Planned Parenthood at the clinic in Kansas City is speaking on behalf of her colleagues at the clinic. Again, that's why I call her an agent of the clinic. This isn't a rogue individual. She says this is the habit, routine, and custom of Planned Parenthood. And again, that's consistent with what we've uncovered in years past about Planned Parenthood's refusal to comply with state statute. 
This issue is, um, it seems, Andrew, a pretty personal one for you because because you have taken in adopted uh, children. Uh, this is an issue that you've seen firsthand. Can you talk about why this is an important issue for you and why why this matters? I believe all life is sacred and should be valued. Not only have my wife and I adopted children out of the foster system, but my wife gave birth to a, a my daughter. And she only lived for an hour and I got to hold her in my arms and I wouldn't trade a minute of that time for anything in the world. How dare anyone break the laws of the state of Missouri and endanger the health and safety of women and girls in order to destroy human life? How does this issue now play out? Uh, what have you filed? Is it a lawsuit against Planned Parenthood? Is it, it is, is it a motion for an injunction for the court to step in and stop the practice? Uh, what's What happens next? Yeah, it's a lawsuit seeking injunctive relief to order Planned Parenthood to cease and desist violations of state statute. That is prospective relief. We're going to obtain discovery in this process, and we're going to hold wrongdoers accountable. We're going to continue this investigation and look back in time and figure out what happened here. And individuals who are violating the civil or criminal code of the state of Missouri will be held accountable. This is just the opening phase in a sequence of events. I mean, I think it's important to highlight here the two things that are working in conjunction to to make something happen here. I mean, first of all, the investigative reporting, because you can be pretty sure that something like this is happening all over the country. Uh, we know Planned Parenthood's rather nefarious history in the eugenics movement. Uh, and now we also know the profitability of abortion to an organization like Planned Parenthood. So I think that their actions can be understood in the context of the fact that this is big business uh, for this organization, but it takes somebody to blow the whistle and go, hey, take a look at this. This is what's happening here. Is it coming out of the horse's mouth? We have too little of that, it seems to me, on our side. And of course, the mainstream media isn't going to do this kind of reporting. So we have to credit, uh, in, in this case, the work of Project Veritas. They drew your attention to this. But then, number two, it takes an attorney general to go, hey, this is not consonant with the laws of Missouri. Uh, I'm going to take action instead of looking the other way. Um, and uh, so kudos to you for for stepping in and uh, and holding these guys accountable. Well, thank you. And I will say credit to the investigative journalists who undertook this investigation and shame on the legacy media. Planned Parenthood, for some reason, is the sacred cow of the left and has carte blanche to operate at will. If any conservative organization were as flagrant and brazen of their uh, violation of statutes as Planned Parenthood w- was, we would be roasted. And yet again, the legacy media once again falls down on the job and exposes its own hypocrisy and bias. So proud that we were able to obtain uh, uh, this video from these investigative journalists who were doing the right thing by exposing this corruption, this deceit. Again, this woman on the video is cons- is is conspiring with a minor to transport that minor across state lines for an abortion, to traffic that minor, and to conceal the sexual exploitation of that minor. And let me point that out as well. The clinic in this instance is a mandatory reporter. The The victim in the video it, uh, explains to the, the individual at the clinic that she's 13 years old. A 13-year-old under Missouri law cannot consent to sexual contact. This was a sexual offense, a crime committed against this 13-year-old, and here the Planned Parenthood was willing to conceal that criminal offense in violation of their mandatory reporting requirements. These are the enemy that we're up against, and this has to be exposed and called what it is with moral clarity. 
I mean, that's an interesting point, which I hadn't thought of, because I think of uh, parental notification as having to do with the right of the parent to be familiar with what the underage child is doing. And that's one part of it. But you're highlighting a second part of it, which is that somebody who's 13 years old is not in a position to make a responsible decision involving something as important as sexuality, the continuation of life. I mean, isn't that the basis for the statutory rape laws? I mean, if some, you know, 35-year-old has sex with a 13-year-old, that is rape, regardless of whether the 13-year-old says yes, why? Because the 13-year-old is presumably not in a mature enough condition to give full consent. And that principle you're saying is applicable here as well. Absolutely. Look, the in the video, the, the victim that came forward and said that she was a 13-year-old who was pregnant was a victim of a sexual offense. And rather than assisting that victim as the statute required, in this instance, Planned Parenthood was w- willing to further victimize this individual and conceal that criminal offense. This is deplorable conduct. And again, no one should be surprised by this because it's a consistent pattern of behavior from this cult of death. Now, when you go to the court, um, what are you asking the court to do? Are you asking the court to stop Planned Parenthood from doing this in the future? But is there going to be any actual accountability for what they've already done? Yes, we're demanding that a court order to force Planned Parenthood to get into compliance with state statute because they willfully refuse to do it on their own. That's prospective relief. But we are absolutely going to use our investigative authority and the tools of discovery to look back and figure out who did what and when. And if there were violations of the civil, criminal, or regulatory code of the state of Missouri, we will hold those individuals accountable in separate legal actions. This is all excellent news. Um, let me pivot to another case that the state of Missouri is involved in, your office is involved in, uh, and that is the case, the Missouri versus Biden case, in which the states of Missouri and Louisiana are suing the Biden administration. This is over digital censorship, about the, the government's active um, collusion or even direction of digital platforms to censor large numbers of people. Uh, I know that the Supreme Court agreed to take the case. Uh, what's the update? When does it come up? When is it going to be heard? When are we going to have a decision? Well, I'm excited to tell you that we will be arguing that case at the United States Supreme Court on March 18th. I will be there at council table with my colleague, Attorney General Morell from Louisiana, and we're excited to take the fight to the enemies of freedom, these proponents of government censorship. But I would describe the relationship between the federal government and big tech as one of coercion that the federal government actually coerced big tech into changing its censorship algorithms to satisfy federal officials' demands for censorship. And look, this was viewpoint discrimination. This is a cowardly act. The Biden administration and its army of federal bureaucrats can't win the argument on the merits about their terrible policy position, so they have to silence any voice in opposition. This is the exact sort of viewpoint discrimination that the First Amendment was intended to protect against. And I've said it before and will say it again. We have got to build a wall of separation between tech and state to protect our First Amendment right to free speech. And this lawsuit is the first opportunity to lay the brick in the wall uh, of separation between tech and state. That was done when the district court handed down its nationwide injunction. We defended that twice at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. So the score is Missouri three, Biden zero in the fight for free speech. And we're going to the Super Bowl. How would you um, defend against or how would you answer if, the let's say, the Biden administration shows up and they argue, yeah, we, we absolutely have been telling these platforms what to do. But guess what? 
uh, they're on our side. They agree with us. Uh, they are, uh, they are advocates of censorship themselves. And so we're not forcing them. They are willing collaborators with us to fight disinformation. Uh, what do you do when you're dealing with a platform that is, in a sense, as bad as the administration and very happy to set up these portals and engage in active censorship, admittedly at government direction, but with complete cooperation? Yeah, well, let me say first and foremost that we obtained preliminary discovery, uh, 20,000 pages of documents or more, numerous depositions, and we took that evidence to court. This isn't hypothesis or legal theory or conspiracy theory. These are facts that have been established by the presentation of evidence in court and were accepted into evidence in court. 80 pages, uh, numbered paragraphs of factual findings when the district court ended down its preliminary injunction. And one of the facts that the court, the district court found and the Fifth Circuit Court affirmed was that, in fact, these instances of censorship that we've uncovered were at the direct demand of the federal government. So that's why I'm using the word coercion. So the Biden administration can't go back now and relitigate that issue or pretend like it didn't happen. It's already been proven in court. I see. So in other words, what you're saying is that, and, and this actually makes a little bit of sense to me, many of the guys who set up these tech platforms were libertarian-oriented guys. So the the idea that they automatically transposed into authoritarians is a little hard to believe. Somebody must have twisting their arm from the back. And of course, they get government benefits in the form of Section 230, not to mention other types of immunity. So they have every good reason to play along, don't they? Absolutely. This is a government-sanctioned monopoly that is now under the direct control of the Biden administration and an army of federal bureaucrats. In fact, the vast censorship enterprise grew so rapidly uh, under Biden's tenure that the federal government had to design and build a new bureaucratic apparatus to manage it. In other words, the censorship demands increased with such frequency and regularity that they had to construct a process uh, to make those demands so it was less scattershot. This is government at its worst. This is government gone wrong and awry and in violation of our rights. And let me say this, too. One of the findings that the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals made was that the harm was to everyone on the in the United States of America who's ever looked at any social media platform and that the harm is, in fact, ongoing. It's not just the speakers who were silenced that was that that were harmed, but the listeners as well. And now what's happening is that individuals are self-censoring. They're less likely to go on big tech and talk about covid tyranny or President Trump, or election integrity for fear of being de-emphasized, de-platformed, booted off these uh, these big tech uh, social media platforms. So the harm is ongoing. These are factual matters that have been established in court, and that the Supreme Court will take notice of. Very important and very exciting, and we'll be watching uh, with great interest. Thank you very much, Andrew Bailey, for joining me. Thank you so much for having me on. Always great to talk to you. Guys, if you'd like to support my work, here's the best way to do it. Check out and join my Locals channel. You can become a monthly subscriber or an annual subscriber. I post a lot of exclusive content there, including content that's censored on other social media platforms. On Locals, you get Dinesh Unchained, Dinesh Uncensored. And also, we get to chat. On Locals, you can interact with me directly. I do a live weekly Q&A every Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern. It's very lively. No topic is off limits. I've also uploaded a bunch of cool films to Locals, documentaries, feature films. Some are mine, some by others. 2,000 Mules is up there and now the new film, uh, Police State. And if you're an annual subscriber, you can stream and watch these movies for free. So check out the channel. It's Dinesh.Locals.com. I'd love to have you along for this great ride again. It's Dinesh.Locals.com. 
I'm in the early stages of making the case for Lincoln in Harry Jaffa's great book, uh, Crisis of the House Divided. And as I mentioned, uh, what Jaffa does is he doesn't just focus on what did Lincoln say in these debates. He sort of does a short but very meaningful tour through the life and events and great early speeches of Lincoln, which are foreshadowing of what is to come in Lincoln's life. In other words, the great showdown with Douglas, then the even bigger 1860 campaign, and of course, the beginning and conduct of the of the Civil War. Now, Jaffa makes the point at the outset that Lincoln sort of began with a pretty ordinary political career. He was uh, he was uh, first of all a menial worker. Then he was a um, then he was a lawyer. He was known to be a really good lawyer, but he had a strange mode of argument that's probably worth uh, mentioning because it's so interesting. Evidently, when he's defending somebody in a business case or even a criminal case, let's say a guy's accused of murder. Lincoln had a very strange strategy, which is different than what you normally see. What you normally see is a lawyer defending a client will come and say, well, he had no motive to do the murder, but you know what? If he had a motive, uh, he didn't have a gun. Uh, Well, but if he had a gun, uh, he was actually somewhere else. He had no opportunity to use it. And if you can prove that he was on the scene of the crime, uh, he's a very bad shot and he probably didn't get the guy. It was probably somebody else who did it. So in other words... What what a defense lawyer will do is attack the evidence in every direction, trying to make a little chi- uh, chip here, a little hole there, a scratch over here, and then hoping the jury will will kind of go for it and believe, well, there's a little bit of doubt here, a little bit of doubt there. Uh, Lincoln's strategy was not this at all. Lincoln's strategy was unbelievably to uh, not only concede a lot of the case against his own client, but affirm it strongly himself. So he would come up to the podium and go, many of you probably think at this point that my client is a bum. That's because he is a bum. I hate him. I don't like him at all. And another, then the prosecution will also contend that he has an excellent motive for killing his wife. And I agree. After all, if your wife is cheating on someone else, I'd want to kill him myself. So this is almost unbelievable because the defense attorney seems to be giving up the case uh, to the prosecution. But then Lincoln would say, even though he's a bad guy, even though he has a motive, and even though, yeah, he did go out and buy a gun, uh, this whole case turns on one single point. And what Lincoln would do is he would kind of bore into, B-O-R-E, bore into the case, kind of dive into the case, and he would find the one kind of area of ambiguity or doubt where the prosecution had not proven its case, and then Lincoln would focus his entire defense on that. Um, and he was remarkably successful because, again, when a uh, when a defense lawyer is trying to defend on every front, the jury goes, well, yeah, of course he's doing that. He, it's his job. He's being paid to raise doubts. He's trying to raise doubts even when there really aren't reasonable doubts. So this guy is doing nothing more than sort of throwing mud at a prosecution, whereas Lincoln would say, look, a case is sort of like a chain, a chain in a, in, in a set of links. Uh, and every link in the chain needs to be firm for the case to work. Because think about it. Uh, let's say a guy um, is a bad guy. Let's say he has a motive. Let's say he was at the scene of the crime. 
The real question is, did he do it? Uh, and the prosecution has to prove that he did it beyond a reasonable doubt. So Lincoln would zoom in there. And um, so this was the, the Lincoln legal strategy. But the point I was making, which I now pick up, is Jaffa says, nobody would have guessed based upon this. You've got a successful local lawyer. Then he runs for Congress. He gets into Congress, uh, but he's undistinguished. He's involved in local matters, moving a br- building a bridge over here, moving the capital from here to there. And Jaffa goes, who would have predicted that this guy would not only make his way uh, to president of the United States, but become, by common consent, uh, the greatest president the country has has produced? By the way, I am in agreement with the judgment that Lincoln should be placed at number one. A lot of people reflexively say George Washington was our best president. Uh, in my view, George Washington was our second best president. Uh, and, uh, but the, um, but, and for reasons that we will understand a little bit better as we, as we go through this book, uh, Lincoln was in a league of his, uh, of his own. Now, I mentioned yesterday Lincoln's very modest self-presentation, which uh, continues the idea that he's kind of a nobody. Let me give a couple of examples of this. And uh, somebody asked him, uh, when, this is when Lincoln was nominated for the presidency. So let's look at what we're talking about. He lost the Senate race to Douglas in 1858. He is now nominated somewhat implausibly. He was not initially the leading candidate. That was another guy named Seward. But Lincoln is nominated for the Republican nomination for the presidency in 1860. And somebody asked him, can you kind of tell us a little bit about your early life? And Lincoln basically goes, kind of like, what's there to tell? I'm quoting Lincoln. Why, he said, it is a great folly to attempt to make anything out of me or my early life. It can all be condensed into a single sentence, and that sentence you will find in Gray's Elegy, The Short and Simple Annals of the Poor. Now, here is a very tricky type of statement because, first of all, the ordinary guy who's just lived a undistinguished life like some poor laborer is not really going to be quoting a poem written by the British poet Thomas Gray, in which Lincoln not only is familiar with Gray, but can quote Gray's elegy. So it takes a certain type of person to be able to do that. So right away, that's a a little bit of a giveaway. Another time, uh, Lincoln was uh, asked to write out some biographical details about himself. And here's what he, he says. I was born and have ever remained in the most humble walks of life. I have no wealthy or popular relations to recommend me. My case is thrown exclusively upon the independent voters of this county, and if elected, they will have conferred a favor upon me for which I shall be unremitting in my labors to compensate. But, this is a very strange statement, if the good people and their wisdom shall see fit to keep me in the background, I have been too familiar with disappointments to be very much chagrined. This is a, this requires a little bit of unpacking here because first of all, uh, well, I'm thinking now here a little bit about my son-in-law, Brandon Gill, running for Congress. Uh, Can you imagine Brandon saying, 
My fellow citizens of Denton County, if you choose to elect me, I will work tirelessly on your behalf. But guess what? If you if you choose to pass me over, elect somebody else, no big deal. I'm kind of a loser anyway. I've, I, I've been dealt a lot of hard knocks in life. This will just be another hard knock for me. So no, no problem, guys. Um, this is unusual rhetoric coming from a politician, and it's it's at a time when Lincoln is running for office in um, in his home state of Illinois. You have to realize what Lincoln is doing here is he is very consciously making himself out to be an everyman, an ordinary fellow, which think about it. This is something that you want to do in a democratic society because you want to say to the ordinary man, you should vote for me. I'm one of you. Uh, I'm not coming here with big connections. So Lincoln here is crafting the the Lincoln myth. And by myth here, I don't mean something that is false. I just mean the Lincoln story that then becomes very powerfully present to the public mind. Um, one of a, um, a prominent uh, political scientist, um, uh, Hofstadter, Richard Hofstadter, uh, wrote, the first author of the Lincoln legend and the greatest of the Lincoln dramatists was Lincoln himself. Now, how do we know that Lincoln was a little different than the portrait that I've just given, than, than Lincoln's own self-portrait? Well, Lincoln had a law partner, and this is a guy named Herndon. Uh, he was Lincoln's law partner for many, many years. Think of it. These two guys work out of a small, you know, two-room office uh, in Illinois for um, for years on multiple cases. They saw each other every day. So Herndon knew Lincoln very well. And somebody asked Herndon, how would you describe uh, Abraham Lincoln? And here is Herndon, quote, His ambition was a little engine that knew no rest, end quote. So what Herndon is saying is that, no, the ordinary guy is just about glad to get through the day. He collects his paycheck, he goes home to his family, he looks forward to the weekend, the ordinary guy now, not so different from the ordinary guy then, but says Herndon, that's not Lincoln. He's not like that. This guy, even if he gets from A to C or A to D, he next wants to figure out how do you get to F? How do you get to G? The moment he gets there, he wants to move on. So Lincoln is, uh, has this uh, great ambition which, of course, requires appropriate circumstances in order for him to be able to play on the biggest stage. So Lincoln recognizes just having the ambition isn't enough. Having the talent isn't enough. Having hard work isn't enough. There has to be also political opportunity. By the way, another guy who thought very much the same way was Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill, at a young age, I just read a letter that he wrote at the age of 16, and he basically said, I am going to be the savior of London. I'm going to be the savior of England. Uh, the whole country is going to come under some incredible threat, uh, and I'm going to be the one to save it. Now, think about it. When, when Churchill wrote that, he was, I believe, 16 years old. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Uh, it was a long way. It was not even a long way from World War II. It was a long way from World War I. Uh, and, and it required events to bring about the conditions that Churchill was describing so that he could, in fact, become the savior of England as he turned out to be. So same with Lincoln. Here's a guy, and this is what Jaffa's getting at, even though he's in the sidelines, even though he's in the shadows, even though he portrays himself as kind of an ordinary guy, kind of a nobody, he is preparing himself to perform on a great stage, but a great stage uh, whose lights have not yet been turned 
turned on, uh, whose direction he doesn't really know. He doesn't know the full role that he's going to play. What can be said is that he's getting himself ready to play it. Subscribe to the Dinesh D'Souza podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify, or watch on Rumble, YouTube, and SalemNow.com.